Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection Show. We love these shows. Uh, typically, we air these every fourth Wednesday. Uh, excuse me, every fourth Friday. I've got the Wednesday stuck in my brain because today is Wednesday that we're recording on. Uh, but we do these shows every fourth Friday with our guest co-host, fine art nature photographer, Margot Cabrera. And this show is really dedicated to the environment, uh, nature, wildlife. How can we coexist with nature? And that brings our guest on the show today, Michael Meta Webster. He is an expert in ecology, conservation, philanthropy, nonprofit management. He's a professor of practice in the Department of Environmental Studies at NYU. And he's joining us with his debut book. It's called, uh, it's all about the rescue effect. And what I love about it is he has six rescue effects he can go through with us today. Uh, it's out now through Timber Press. And again, it's The Rescue Effect, The Key to Saving Life on Earth. So welcome, Michael. How are you? Well, thank you for having me here. I'm doing great today. Oh, yeah. it's good to have you on the show. And uh, Margo, how are you doing over in San Diego? Enjoying uh, the cooler weather. And uh, we might even get rain. Oh, that's, oh, we love that. We love that. See, yeah. um, rain is good. I think we need that. It's been interesting, the weather patterns in the world. So, Michael, do you think that's part of climate change by any chance? Uh, yes, I do. In fact, we can see lots and lots of evidence that many weather patterns are changing, and that's the mm -hmm. most reasonable explanation. Mm -hmm. You know, the rescue effect, I really want to talk about those six uh, rescue effects that you cover uh, some of them I cannot pronounce. I mean, I, I don't know if it's Wednesday or Friday, right? <laughs> but but um, I think it's really important to talk about this because I think we've kind of, in a way, underestimated nature and the power of nature and how connected nature is. All these little systems are going on that as humans are still just discovering one thing at a time, like, wow, did you know, like how the trees work with fungus and how important that is? I'm, I'm never stopping talking about fungus on the show. But, uh, you know, the rescue effect, as soon as I heard your book, the very first thing that came through my mind was how lizards and geckos lose their tail if they're attacked. And then they mm -hmm. can move on. And how does that tail just keep wiggling still, which is uh, like its own little entity? That's a weird thing. You look at it going, are you alive? What's going on? But it's able to regrow. So it's almost like a it's a rescue. It saved it from being eaten, right? So that, But at the same time, it can grow it back. So that was my first thing that went through my mind. Am I anywhere close to that being a rescue effect? Sure. And let me just begin by saying sort of how I define the rescue effect in the book, which is nature's inherent tendency to rescue itself, particularly when the environment changes. And this is relevant today because the environment around the world is changing really quickly. And so part of how we think about what is going to happen for nature has to do with, well, what can nature do on its own? And this example that you give of, uh, you know, lizards like geckos you know, that response of being able to drop their tail um, uh, when they're attacked by a predator, that probably arose through a long period of evolution, where, you know, if you held on to your tail, you would get eaten, but if you could manage to let go of it, then you could um, avoid or have a much higher probability of avoiding getting caught and eaten in that case. And I think even probably the moving of the tail is to distract the predator toward the tail rather than the rest of the animal giving it a chance mm. to escape. And so that would be an example of evolving to be able to um, live under a different set of circumstances, which is very much part of the rescue effect. And isn't that even what we as a human species have been doing? We've been evolving. I mean, I always wonder when is our little pinky toe going to fall off? Yeah, I mean, humans, humans are very, at least until like modern medicine, um, we're probably evolving fairly quickly uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I mean, if you look at the human lineage back in time, we actually haven't been bipedal for that long. And there's all sorts of problems that are generated from standing on two legs instead of four in terms mm. of how our skeleton works. It's why people have a lot of back problems and knee yeah. issues and hip mm. issues, because we're still sort of in the early stages of that movement from being, you know, something that used all four limbs on the ground to something that uses just two. So, yeah, humans were very, very much evolving rapidly. 
I think today with modern medicine to treat so many of the things that would have ailed us and, and maybe removed us from the gene pool in the past, it may be that we're not evolving as quickly as we once were, but uh, I actually haven't seen any good research on the, the rate of human evolution really, you know, in modern times. Hmm. The, the rescue effect too, you talk about, you know, this is nature's been, has these systems and, and, and is evolving with them as well. So, you know, it's, it kind of takes the pressure off a little bit when we think about climate change, but it's not necessarily don't be active in making, you know, changes because we need to change as a society of, you know, the trash and, and all the pollution that we're creating, but it's, it's like how we can really work with nature, right? So, um, it's like, yeah, nature can solve things, but um, we could be left behind really as a species if we don't work with nature, right? Yeah, I think that's right. Listen, the rescue effect, this, this, these tendencies in nature, they're pretty strong and they help most species adapt when their environment is changing, but they also have limits. You know, there are, they, mm. you know for any species, if change happens too fast or too much change, they, they can, they can you know, sort of get uh, to a situation where they can't keep up quickly enough. And this is really the challenge for us as we think about nature going forward. The rescue effect is super helpful because it means that nature is pretty good at this already. And you know we can, we can rely on nature as a strong partner in this process, but we can't assume that nature is gonna be able to solve all the challenges that we throw at it. We're gonna to have to help along the way as well. Are we probably the only species that has caused um, our future to be in question? as far as we're causing the change to the, the climate, instead of the climate, it's just changing because it's changing. We're causing it and giving ourselves problems. And yeah, I think we're the only species who has that way of working. I mean, I can't think of another species who causes so much damage to their own environment that they, they ace themselves out. It just seems to be us. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of species that change their environment localized in a way that eventually causes them harm. You can think of things mm. like yeasts in, you know, making beer or yeah. wine. You know, they do, they do that until the alcohol content gets so high <laughs> that they cannot survive anymore. So you can come oh. up with local, you can come up with localized examples of okay. that kind of pattern. But but I do agree with you that humans are a really different kind of species than the Earth has ever seen. There's never been a situation where one species has transformed and changed the Earth as you know hugely and as quickly as we have. And so we've got that as, you know, sort of one of our claims to fame. But the other claim to fame we have is, is, is the ability to make decisions about how we want to interact with our, our planet going forward. And I think this is really important in conservation, especially when we think about loss of species and things like that. We're at a stage right now where we've begun to change the world tremendously. And some forms of nature have really suffered because of that. Many, many more are adapting. But we actually have the ability to make a decision about how we're going to, uh, mm. you know, uh, act going forward. We have agency, and so that's something that's also new in nature that hasn't really existed before: is that ability to imagine different futures and make decisions based on the ones that we'd like to see. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is neat. I mean, I think it gives people hope when they can kind of look at examples and what nature is doing because we can learn from nature. So you talked about the evolutionary rescue. What about the geographic rescue? Because that's something when we're looking now, geographically, the the world um, is shifting quite quickly. You know, mm -hmm. we talked to a lady who lived up in Alaska and her village is the first village that had to move because of climate change. And we look at um, the refugee situation and immigrants, um, in this country, I, of course, that's a hot political topic, but it's it's shifting because our species is getting out of control with each other. Let's put it that way. Okay, but then at the same time, so there's political turmoil and war, but the I think the biggest refugee crisis we're going to have of people having to be uprooted from their homes and their, you know, their way of life. Um, is going to be through climate change. So, you know, we're moving. So geographically, how can we adapt as a species and help mother nature, help both sides, basically? Yeah. So the, the concept you're getting at, what I call geographic rescue in the book, is when organisms are live in a particular place, 
they usually live in that place because that place has environmental conditions that are suitable for them. You know, they, they can survive there, they can reproduce there, uh, and they can persist in that place. But as the environment begins to change around them, there comes a point at which maybe it's no longer suitable. In the meantime, other places in the world might be becoming more suitable because they're also changing, but they're changing starting from a different point. And so what we're starting to see around the planet is that a lot of species are changing their geographic range. Some of them are starting to disappear from places where we've been accustomed to seeing them in the past, and they're starting to show up in places where we've never seen them before. Now, this can happen, you know, naturally uh, uh, just by organisms that have some sort of dispersal phase. I mean, imagine like a, a seed of a tree getting blown in the wind. It might get blown to a new place where trees, that tree species can now survive. You know, a bird might fly or an insect might fly to a new location. And so organisms are always sampling the environment, and when they find a place that works for them, they're happy to settle in and move in. And so right now there's actually a growing evidence of lots of species moving. And in, in the Northern hemisphere, the hmm. most common pattern is that they're moving from the South to the North. They're basically starting to track climate. They're probably moving faster in the oceans than they are on land just because things get around better in the oceans. But there's this sort of big wave coming of species that are moving to new locations. And I think you're right to draw a parallel with people. As we change the climate on the planet, we're also going to find more and more places that may have once been suitable for people, but are becoming less and less suitable, maybe because of extreme high temperatures, extreme mm. drought, desertification, mm. issues like that, that maybe once weren't as bad in those places that are maybe becoming worse and worse. And that then creates the same kind of challenge for people, people who are living in places that maybe are no longer suitable for any, any number of reasons. You know, one logical solution is for them to move to a new location. Obviously, we've set up the world with all sorts of geopolitical boundaries and nations and rules that don't necessarily yeah. make that easy. But the incentives are certainly um, uh, there and they're probably growing for people to want to relocate to other parts of the planet. Mm. And I look at also the way um, animals are thriving in places like look at the pythons in the Everglades. Uh, yeah, look at lionfish. The lionfish mm. are, and some of that came even with hurricanes and, you know, that the species got moved and, you know, transported to other lands and then they become invasive. And so then there becomes a, like, that's like an animal war or a plant war. Mm. So the habitats are really changing. And so there's, we've done an interview with a, a gentleman who um, was a homeless person at the time. He was feeding the conures in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. The mm -hmm. conure birds. And he was taking care of ones with broken wings. And, he, and a lady made a documentary on him. And they ended up hooking up and getting married. And we actually went and met them um, up by Coit Tower. Mm -hmm. And you know, you, it was cool. And we they had all these baby birds that they were taking care of. And people were, it was a very interesting response to the documentary where people were like, oh, that's really cute. They're beautiful. Let's go Bats. see the birds. But, but then people attack them because you're helping non-native species. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, they came by boat. They didn't know. They were, they were like literally slaves on this boat because somebody was importing them for a, a pet, right? But why, why just if they're able to adapt here, we should be supporting them. And so I've, and I've heard this argument before of, mm -hmm. you know, get rid of the invasive. That makes sense. We get rid of all the mustard and, and all the negative things in a national park for example but maybe they do thrive and the other ones move on so what do you think about that part of it because it's a it's kind of a gray area and, and it's it's happening though <laughs> it's real yes so i've been working in ecology and conservation for a long time and the sort of the orthodox view has always been that species that get to new places because of human intervention are necessarily bad and we should do things like try to remove them I will say that my view on this has has evolved to the point where uh, I don't think that that's necessarily the right way to be looking at nature and see things that are new to place as inherently harmful or inherently bad. There certainly are species that get introduced that cause lots of problems, like you mentioned the snakes in South Florida that, that do genuinely cause lots of problems. They're also really going to be impossible to remove, too. So at some point, you might want to try to remove them, but you won't get rid of them. But the Conyers in, in, in uh, 
San Francisco is an excellent example because at the end of the day, it's like, how much harm do those birds cause and how much joy do those birds cause? I know from my perspective, I've spent a lot of time in San Francisco. I always love seeing those birds. I know that I know they're from South America and yeah. I wouldn't remove them. I'm perfectly comfortable with having, having them live there. I think they're an awesome bird that at least I'm not aware of any acute harm that they're causing. Yeah, the system. damage. Yeah, it's not every species who moves to a new place causes damage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so I think we have a tendency in conservation to immediately assume that any mm-hmm. change that they make is necessarily a negative one. But ecosystems don't really work that way. They're always mixing up species and changing. And this is one of the places where I know you guys do a lot of work on parks. I think we're actually mm-hmm. gonna have to come to terms with a different vision for things like national parks in the future. I mean, you think about the idea behind these national parks of let's lock up these amazing places and sort of hold them in this same state in perpetuity so that everyone can always go back and see them and experience them exactly as they were mm-hmm. when they were when they were when they were turned into parks. But ecosystems never worked that way. Ecosystems have always been changing. A lot of those parks are in places that were under glaciers during the last ice age and had nothing living there and they've been recolonized since. And with climate change and introduced species, we're getting new mixes of species all over on the planet mm-hmm. and they're not inherently bad. And so I think we need to look at parks through the lens of saying, well, okay, let's think about the features we would like to retain within those parks, but also let's recognize that the environment is changing. And so that same group of species in that same kind of ecosystem is not their likely future. So let's talk Mm -hmm. about how they're changing and think about whether and how we want to intervene both to facilitate that change as well as to maybe try to slow that change. And by facilitate that change, one of the things we might want to be doing is really thinking about geographic rescue and when do we get involved? When do we take species that are, say, trapped in parks that are maybe becoming less suitable for them and consider them moving them to new parks or maybe they will do better in the future? Is that These ideas are very controversial in conservation, Mm -hmm. but I think we need to start asking them. I, I really mm. think so, because I, the one thing, too, is, is mm. like, let's look at uh, Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Um, it was one of the first parks that we really saw tackle climate change. So they have agriculture at the, in the foothills, a massive agriculture. And it, that, that area really does feed America but, um, and the world. But when you go up to the top, they have experienced a lot of pollution. Uh, and, and there are some days where it's yeah. really hazy. And the mm-hmm. pollution is from agriculture and it is from fires also, and just also having Fresno and some of those bigger cities below. So they were really looking at this. And what's what's interesting when you go to these places and they're looking at it, at, so it is, we looked at a video of friends who went to Kings Canyon in the seventies, like a homemade video. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it looks identical. Like it really has been preserved. However, you can see the air quality difference just in that video was the mm. was the difference. So I'm wondering as we start doing these things that animals are going to want to shift out if the temperature is changing, look at in the ocean, they may want to shift mm. to a new location because they know it's going to be better for them. But at the same time, we're seeing species come up that haven't been there for like hundreds of years, or is it maybe we just didn't know how to look for them? I don't know what's going on, but I feel like you can't, like you're saying, box everything in here because if it's too polluted for certain bird species in that park and the birds are like, hey, I'm bailing over to Pinnacles National Park, it's not so bad over there, then, I mean, that's what we do as humans. Like if, if your neighborhood mm-hmm. ain't that great, I'm like, it's, I'm, you know, my real estate isn't good anymore. I'm moving. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really interesting example you bring up because, you know, the, the icon of Sequoia Kings Canyon is the sequoia. And, you know, the reason it's such an iconic tree is because those individuals there are so large and so impressive, but you only get to organisms that are that size and that old in a relatively stable climate. They've been able to rely on the climate being similar for a very long period of time. And, you know, I think unless we really do get a handle on climate change pretty quickly, those big trees are probably going to have a harder and harder time surviving with yeah. new fire regimes, new mm-hmm. water regimes, new disease regimes. Yeah. And, and, you know, that. It may be and that the best place for sequoias in the future is not in that part of the Sierras. They may mm-hmm. they may do better further north. I used to live in Oregon and there were sequoias on the campus where I did my graduate school. Beautiful trees. They seem to do just fine in Oregon. And so it may be that over time that even our even our image of where a sequoia lives may move further north as the trees try to move on their own, but they're isolated enough. They may not be especially good at it, but as people move them from one location to another as well. 
Oh, wow, because mm -hmm. we've seen them, well, we saw a prehistoric or petrified one um, in Florissant Fossil Beds National Monument in Colorado. And I was just like, no way. And it's massive. I mean, they, they had to like build mm -hmm. like a garage top over it. I mean, like a big one. And it was it was huge, and this was a sequoia, and I was like, no way, this is so cool. So they were here at some point, and Florissant is it's trippy. I mean, they had like hydrangeas fossilized. You know what I mean? So that's a whole other weird thing. But and, and what that's I, showing you yeah. is that life has always been good at moving around, and the species that are persisted are the ones that are able to you know adjust when their environment changes and do things like move to new places. Hmm. Margo, have you been to the sequoias? Margo? I, I was there when I was a child and hmm. I was in awe. I, I remember um, the tree that you could like walk through or, or yes. drive through. Mm -hmm. yeah. The tunnel tree. <laughs> yeah, it was just amazing. And um, I just love the forest. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When, when you think about these these forests, I think that that's a huge part of like that change. When you think, when you keep talking about the sequoias moving, I literally seeing them marching <laughs> to Oregon. They're like, that's it, we're going up north. I can love the kids. Yeah, I, read, I read that, they are, that they're really not a whole bunch of different trees. They're really a few trees and underground, their roots lock up and another one pops up off of that same root system. So they appear to be more than one tree but it's really not the case and i'm still wrapping my mind around that because like how do you know which tree is related to who you know there's a tree city <laughs> under fresno <laughs> well, and, and then i think you know when when people go to move a tree like that if they would even try something like that then they would be chopping the root system and wouldn't the rest die i mean yeah, yeah, I mean, there's no there's no realistic way to move a large tree like that. And yeah, I, did, was, I didn't know about sequoias, but there are plenty of trees that are clonal like that, that do grow through, yeah. you know, roots. I think of like aspens in Colorado grow that way. Oh. So you can get a whole little forest that's basically the same tree, just different stems of the same root system. Mm. Wow. Now, that's what crazy. about the genetic rescue effect? I want to talk about that because, I mean, genetics has obviously been a huge topic over the last few years. We've had so many changes in, in learning parts and talk about trees. We are part tree. That's I've learned that. We're like a little percentage of tree. <laughs> okay. So, well, I'm trying to learn how to bend like a willow more. So <laughs> tell us a little bit about that genetic part of it. Yeah. So there's there's really, so the rescue effect is this inherent tendency and I, in my book, I break it down into sort of six different things that are going on in nature that are creating the rescue effect. Two of them are actually related to genetics. One is evolutionary rescue and something evolves to change, uh, to deal with changing conditions. Genetic rescue, which you're bringing up, is more about the problems of small populations. So if you've got a very small number of individuals living in a place, they tend to get inbred over time. And what that means is they tend not to have a whole lot of genetic diversity, and they can get to the point where they don't do very well in their environment because of their low genetic um, uh, diversity. In genetic rescue, a few individuals come in from the outside into that population. They basically bring some new genetic diversity into the system and hmm. give that population a, a sort of a new lease on life. And so again, this is something that tends to happen once population sizes get very small, this is something that could actually be happening with some of the sequoias because they are tend to be in groves of relatively small numbers of individuals. I don't know if it's happening there, but we do see this as a problem, especially in a world where a lot of wildlife is getting confined to parks. If, they, if a park can only support a few of an animal, like a, a top predator or something like that, um, it can get to be a problem over time because there just aren't enough of them to maintain a healthy population. So having a few move from one park to another can be super helpful for keeping the, um, uh, the, the basically the genetic health of population strong. So this is like when we talk about a, a viable herd or a viable population, it's, it means that they're health, you know, re reproducing in a healthy, normal way. Um, when we look at parks and it, we always talk about the importance of having like a national forest around them in a state park, you know, things like that. You talk about the redwoods up, you know, up in the uh, border of Northern California and, and Oregon, you know, having the state park being connected helps because it creates this buffer zone mm -hmm. to what we're doing as humans too. I mean, 
we were talking about this. We were just went through a lot of Appalachia and uh, we've done so many shows on, you know, the Smokies, Blue Ridge Mountains and the, I mean, the coal issue. I mean, we've done so much <laughs> on all of what has happened. And then we were just there and could see mm -hmm. the effects and could see if we don't have these buffer zones, like animals need to be able to move there. You can't right. like we see we see herds of deer will just I mean, every time we go to Sequoia National Park, I know exactly where deer family lives because they don't seem to migrate as much, but they're going to stay kind of where their families are. We see it with birds. You know, it's like if you have a cardinal family in your backyard, oftentimes they'll come back every year or you know what I mean? Unless they're residents, we see the same bird family that will just keep coming back. But going to your point as well, we're seeing birds come at different times and different species people I know a lot of birders and they're like you're not going to believe we saw this today and I'm like "Ooh, that's not necessarily a good sign but then maybe it is I don't know anymore <laughs> well so what you're seeing with those birds coming at different times is what in the book I would call phenotypic rescue where organisms are changing things like their behavior to adjust to a changing world so mm -hmm. if the if temperature for example is what's driving when birds are choosing to migrate and they're basically following the blooms of different plants or 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 insects right. then being able to mm -hmm. change that timing is really really important to being able to survive in a in, in a changing world if they always came at exactly the same time they might end up getting mismatched so i think what's going a lot on with a lot of those birds who are seeing coming in at different times is they're trying to adjust um, to their changing environment. And so long as it's working, it's a good thing, right? Um, and you know, so long as they're able to find those right environments that they're looking for at the right time, um, you know, the, the problem becomes when there's just no good option, right? Where they can't get to there mm -hmm. in time to get the insect hatch or whatever to feed their chicks. There are certainly places where this can fall apart, but it's a good thing that organisms like birds can adjust their behavior to deal with the environment as it's changing around them. Oh, man. It's, it, it, I think this is one thing we've done some shows on the importance of wildlife corridors and creating mm -hmm. actual roadways and, and um, understanding that they do have migration routes. And I think they're going to take their, their famous route first if they need to get out or get out early. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. hey, the storm's coming. Let's bail soon. But um, we, we well, tend that, to stand in the way too. And that's what one of the chapters in the book is about. Actually, the first chapter is about tigers in India. Mm. And, you know, tiger populations have declined tremendously and there've been some right. struggles to try and get those populations stabilized. More recently, India's actually been doing a pretty good job of protecting their tigers in their parks. And what we're seeing is in a lot of those tiger parks, the populations of tigers are going up, which is a great thing. But the tigers, the populations themselves can never get that big because tigers are territorial and you can't just keep fitting more and more tigers in the park. Right. And so what you, what you risk doing in an isolated park is you can get inbreeding and mm -hmm. genetic rescue in that population. You also produce more tigers that need to go somewhere. And mm -hmm. so in India, these corridors are going to be super important for tigers to be able to find themselves from sort of one park to another park. They can connect each other to each other park, each park genetically, which is important, but they can also move uh, to readjust their, their densities over time. And so this is a big movement in um, the protection of like wildlife parks, which is to try and not just create these isolated fenced in places where wildlife lives but also to have mm -hmm. opportunities for wildlife to move among the different parks and along with the geographic rescue we were talking about before also move to new locations as they're mm -hmm. sort of searching the environment for places that are more suitable as things like the climate changes well who's to say that animals don't evolve like humans have evolved mm -hmm. you know um it, it, over a lot of time obviously but yeah, I I remember in uh, in Kenya we were sitting um, on the patio of this hotel and we had tea, and the this baboon just walked like a person, not on all fours, walked up like a little man, took the bowl of sugar, took the creamer, and turned around and walked out, just walked in down to the forest. So I'm like, okay, look at that. I mean, he just he just walked like a little old man with his cream and sugar, yeah. You know, and it was really funny. You know, and I thought, well, what's the big difference really? And how, how many um, eons would it take for that species to become like us? 
you know, well, <laughs> you know, probably a long time, but you're getting to an important point there. So most people think of evolution as something that takes a really long time to happen. And if you're talking about, you know, a baboon uh, evolving mm. into something like a hominid, yeah, mm -hmm. that's going to take a while because there's more going on than just standing upright. You know, there's the brain, there's everything else. Right. But your point, the point underlying it is an important one, which is with changes in the environment, we are already seeing some organisms showing signs of evolving mm -hmm. new capabilities. And this is something that can actually happen very quickly. If there's mm -hmm. enough diversity in the population, you know, individuals that do different things, um, and that that's based on their genes, you can actually have evolution happen almost instantly. On coral reefs, we're seeing this where when mm. you get a heat wave, it kills some of the corals because it gets too hot, other corals survive. Well, if that ability to survive that heat wave is related to their genes, then in that moment, you've actually had evolution happen. So that the corals that are left are the ones that on average are better at dealing with higher temperatures. This happens with disease resistance. This happens with you know mm. ability to survive at different temperatures. It's happened with predator prey interactions. Scientists have shown like snakes that once you know died eating cane tones that are uh, invasive in Australia have learned not to do that, or if they do, they they survive better. And it's genetically hardwired. They're evolving to deal with these changes around us. And so I think in conservation, we've had this idea for a long time of, well, evolution is interesting, but it's not really relevant to what we're doing in conservation. I think what we're beginning to see more and more of is that evolution actually is relevant to conservation because it can happen, at least under the right circumstances, pretty quickly. Oh, man. I, I, that's kind of interesting because if you think about medicine, I mean, half of the time, like, you even you know if you get bitten by a snake they're going to put more venom on you or something i mean it's you know it's like whatever what doesn't kill you makes you stronger kind of saying right but that's happening in nature too it's like well it's like we're seeing animals live in cities in a and adapt mm -hmm. in cities right. in such a it's it's wild but it's happening and they need we all need to somehow coexist so it's cool to watch what they do to realize that, you know, we don't have, to, it is this whole get out of that box thing. You know, you can't, it, we're all going to be moving because we're going to have to. <laughs> Glad we're on well, the road full time. Unless we stop causing the, the climate to change. Mm -hmm. But we have to admit we're responsible first. Mm. Uh -oh. <laughs> I know. I think, I think that's a really important point. I mean, you know, in, in my book, I talk about all the amazing things that nature do can do mm. to adapt to change. I also talk about the things we can do to help individual species, you know, give them a little boost to help them with that adaptation process. But I think overall, the one thing that as a planet, we should, should probably, you know, all be uniting around is sort of the most important thing we can do for the future of nature. And that's begin bending that climate change curve. Again, a lot of life is already adapting to a changing climate. That's great news because, you know, it, it helps in this process. But if we can slow the rate of climate change and eventually mm -hmm. stop climate change, that's what's going to make the biggest difference for the future of life on Earth. I, I agree. And, and things are changing, you know, like we're, we're seeing species that we thought were 100% gone. Like one day we're going to wake up and someone's going to find a duck-billed platypus again. It's like it's going to pop up and go, I'm here, you know, but it, you never know. You just never well, know. Well, good or news, duck-billed platypus has not gone extinct. They're still around, so we still have those ones. So that's what? good news. They're cool. <laughs> See? They're really cool. I that's, love that's... those. They're like somebody just threw a bunch of parts in and went, look at that. Really, I thought they're they were cute. completely gone. It's like the you know dodo birds and all. We've we've lost doing. we've lost some really cool iconic species. Fortunately, not that one yet. Yeah, yeah I'm glad because they're they're neat. Do you think that um, the climate changing on Earth can affect another planet? Um, not through any direct mechanism that I know about. Mm. Um, yeah, I'm not unless unless you, you could say indirectly if it pushes us to, you know, uh, get more into interplanetary travel and start colonizing other planet, planets uh, and mm. changing them, then sure, that, there's a direct, <laughs> there's a there's a pathway there that I can imagine. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, uh, without, without that, I don't, I don't see the physical connectivity between planets as being mm. high enough for something like that to happen. I always felt like aliens would come from Saturn and land here and say, well, you guys need to get your gap together. You're hurting mm. our planet. You know, <laughs> <laughs> one, one, one thing, you know, I really appreciate what you're, what you're doing, because I think it's something that we as individuals can read your book, 
and start to look just in our own backyard. What what can we do to, you know, help species? And what are they doing? What can we? I and mean, we can learn a ton from watching nature and you know seeing how they adapt. And it's just it's interesting to me the parallels of what nature is doing and what we as a human species are doing. You know, it's just even like we were talking about you know, being refugees and having to move. It's the same thing that animals have to do. And so mm -hmm. we can take those little steps and see, okay, we can learn from them, but also what can we do for specific species in our backyard, in our parks, and go and communicate with the municipalities and the parks management. And it's very difficult, becomes a very political drama thing, yeah. but it really helps to have some kind of evidence and some kind of information like your book and what you've done because i know um excuse me even the like the wild horses uh, there everyone's arguing about you know are they feral are they not and and you know so we know some people are like actually if they have you know why hagenman um hagerman fossil uh fossil national monument in i think it's oregon right nancy or idaho it was idaho, idaho. Um, has fossils of actual wild horses that are connected to the wild horses we have running around in the West. And so there's this big war going on about, no, they're Spanish, no, they're feral, no, they came back, they did, I don't know. They but came they, and they, they disappeared are and they came protected back. <laughs> and our government is killing them. And then not in yeah. a humane way. And so I, I just go like, why can't we kind of work together to make, make it safe for the, number one, be humane, if you're going to take them out and stop hunting them by helicopter for fun um, because there is a guy who does that and he gets charged with it and then he gets rehired. Um, how do we use what your knowledge to get through to people to kind of maybe back down and, and open their mind a bit about conservation? Because I think that's one of the most important things about what you're doing is kind of like stop using the same rules because that's not how nature works. Yeah, and I think that horses are an interesting example that you bring up because, mm. as you pointed out, there used to be uh, horse species in North America mm -hmm. um, uh, that have gone extinct. I think they were part of the Pleistocene extinctions. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, other species of horses survived that, including, you know, what we now think of as the domestic horse, right? And I think that's a separate species. It's been reintroduced to North America in a few different places. Mm -hmm. But then it creates this question of, well, should we keep it? Should we remove it? And you know, what does that mean? Well, there used to be horses. Maybe it's sort of normal to have horses in these ecosystems. The other thing that we don't have in a lot of those ecosystems are the top predators that would potentially eat horses. And so then you create another ecological problem if you just have herbivores without predators then mm. the, the then they run the risk of becoming too abundant uh over consuming the resource and starving which is also not a great um mm. uh you know end for you know horses you talk about sort of humane humane um treatment of them that's not a great uh, end point either i don't know enough about the the horse issue in north america but i know that if you're going to introduce a um a big herbivore like that it doesn't have any predators you're really creating a certain kind of ecosystem that is likely to have boom and bust cycles as they as they over consume their resources their population gets scaled back and then the population grows again which Kinda doesn't like sound like wolves. a great answer yeah. why, well, why so the wolves, wolves, wolves are like wolves the keystone, are cool. like the apex i mean that's where people just it's like they want to kill sharks and wolves <laughs> and yet these are just such important animals in an ecosystem Right, but it's, it's hard to imagine much in North America that's going to be able to take out a horse other than a wolf, right? What other predators, you know, maybe yeah. you could imagine a grizzly bear in an extreme situation, but um, a wolf is really to be likely to be the only native predator that, that's, that, that could function in those systems. And at least if I'm remembering correctly, the places where the horses are are probably not the same places where the wolves are. Yeah, well, they mm -hmm. used to be um, years and years and years ago, but, and we also used to have jaguars. I mean, that's the other part. Like, well, and we used I to believe have the camel came mm -hmm. from Camels. North America, mm -hmm. which I find really interesting that cool. the camel originated, as far as we know. But then somebody will find a fossil that's earlier. Like I was reading that the earliest fossil of the hummingbird is actually in Europe, and Europe doesn't have humming, hummingbirds. That's interesting. So, I know that. Yeah, well, you know, know the Earth did shift a little bit. I'm just saying at some point, yeah. it's, you know, <laughs> so that's, well, that's, that's the thing. The Earth, you know, and then this other fight with climate change is, there's a whole argument of people saying, well, you know, the earth has changed. We've had the ice age and now this is the climate change age. This is like a natural occurrence, which is a, 
yes, we've had these big changes, but it doesn't mean that we should just go, oh, yippee, we're going to all fry. Let's go. <laughs> you know? It's just so, a party. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because the, the earth itself has gone through so many I mean, chemical changes, geological changes, it's all chemical, right? But so we have this with climate change, but it's, we did add to the change speeding up, right? What would you say about that argument? Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I listen, need, I need, ed, I need info so I can argue it, better. It's not, it's not wrong to say that the that the Earth's climate does change naturally over long periods of time, and it even goes through yeah. cycles of warming and cooling. We've got tons of evidence of that. That's um, the current warming doesn't look like that. It looks like something else is going on, and it's not too hard to figure out what that something else is. So you know, even if we were in a natural warming cycle right now, the the we've added a ton on top of that which is where the climate is changing really quickly and really that's one of the bigger concerns even more than climate change per se it's the rate and the amount right mm -hmm. it's changing really really fast really in fast. the past in the past when climate changed lots of organisms didn't have a lot of the problems that they have right now like being fragmented into small parks being hunted new diseases you know dealing mm -hmm. with harmful invasive species when they happen all of those things are actually going to make it more difficult for species to adapt uh to things like climate uh whereas mm -hmm. if you imagine you know the climate change at the end of the, the pleistocene at that point humans were a minor actor on a lot of the planet um, it, you would have had continuous habitat, much larger populations of wildlife. It would have been easier for them to move, and they had thousands of years to adjust. Mm. We've changed all of that in a period of, you know, like a century and mm -hmm. compressed it all, which the, the rapid change is what's hardest for nature. Mm -hmm. with, with us, you know, fighting climate mm. change and your book, The Rescue Effect, who do you feel really needs to read your book the most in regards to applying things to protect nature and let nature go where it wants to go and do its thing, you know? Well, I'll, I'll tell you who I, one of the main audiences I had in mind for writing the book, then these are folks, I mean, I, I would encourage anyone to read it, but these are the folks yeah, that yeah. I had in mind. The folks that I had in mind when I wrote the book were people who uh, care about nature on some level. They're interested mm -hmm. in something about nature, about the outdoors, and they've had experiences thinking about conservation in, that are predominantly negative, which is mm -hmm. we're losing this, this is changing, that species is endangered, where that's going extinct, and and it's sort of a it's a it's a narrative of loss, and danger, and urgency, and most of that stuff's true. So I don't want to I don't want to deny the fact that we are actually in a period where that's true. But I think what happens sometimes is we talk so much about that that sometimes we get to the point where we're sort of demoralized, mm -hmm. where it sort of feels mm -hmm. like we can't do anything, where it feels like it's overwhelming. Yeah. And I find that feeling to be counterproductive, right? Uh, because Absolutely. I find that to be demotivating. Yeah. And so I spent a lot of time working in conservation, talking with lots of different people. And when I would have conversations with them about, well, you know, I've worked on coral reefs mostly about, you know, how corals might be able to make it through climate change, how they might be able to adapt, how they might and how we might be able to help them. Being able to talk about those things always shifted the conversation to one more of agency, which is there are things we can do to help. There is a future here that we can create that is an attractive future. Let's get to work on that. And so the book was really designed in some ways for that population of people who are feeling worried about nature and concerned. And not to say that your worry or concern is unfounded, but to say that that's not the whole story. Yeah. That nature is actually pretty good at adapting. And we should recognize that and celebrate that. And to the extent we can use that knowledge to help us do a better job on conservation. Because if we're worried about the future of life and the future of species on the planet, I mean, at this point, we've lost very, very few species, at least compared to how many are out there. And what that means is the choices we make now get to determine what happens in the future. And so we can choose to do things like reduce climate change and protect species and ensure that most of them make it through this bottleneck we're creating. Mm -hmm. And I find that really powerful because it means we have the option and it makes me want to get to work. I, I really agree, I agree with you. And when, mm -hmm. I mean, that's why we travel and do what we do uh, with parks is to connect the parks with the communities or immediate local community because people do forget, like I know people who have Yosemite in their backyard and they only go when family comes to town, you know, so it's the, you know, that kind of thing. It's, 
that and so that they are more active in, yeah, maybe getting rid of the invasive species or whatever they can do. So they are protecting their backyard, which includes this public space and hopefully adding more space for nature, right? And so it's like, so we don't have dead zones. And so we do that, but, um, and also of course for the visitors to get it. But our whole thing, I mean, before that you do radio shows and you just, we would, you'd get so frustrated <laughs> if you're not actually out doing something. You, you hear all this negative and it's like, we're gonna die. Mm -hmm. Like that's how people get yeah. so anxious about it or become like the helicopter parent of conservation. So then you, you're not, um, Productive. Like this, we're not productive. We're yeah. upset all the time. Stress levels not good for health, and then we're not communicating with those that need that communication to make change in a uh, an effective way. And so, I mean, we can look at America right now, or England, or I don't know, pick a country. How we're we're just drawing lines instead of shifting the lines and going, okay, let's work together mm -hmm. for some common goals. Uh, we've got to that height and like look at what's going on politically in our country and I feel the same will happen for wildlife and in conservation if we get too riled up on all sides we really should be looking at evidence and coming up with solutions but if you're riled up that's not going to get you anywhere not saying that you shouldn't get riled up and do something I'm just saying we're not communicating in an effective way to get someone to come onto your side you know cake cake is better than poison <laughs> feed them cake <laughs> so i i think that's a that's a really good part of what you've done and i just i really believe people that are in conservation should read your book but in the actual management parts of it and i think municipalities oh, should, should really it should read it schools. to understand in schools yeah margo what do you schools. think well i i think that um what you're doing is saying, okay, this is happening. Let's not just focus on the negative. What what can we do to make it better? What can we do to move through this? Like you said, what can we do to bend the curve? And let's get doing it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the message of our show, actually. That's mm -hmm. why it's becoming mm -hmm. so popular because we're trying to say, okay, we're here. Now, what can we do to make it better? Mm -hmm. right. And I think your book does that. And so I really appreciate your work and coming on our show. And and yeah. um, I do have a question for you because you piqued my interest. You said that we, as humans, stopped evolving, maybe physically, um, because of medicine and what that's intervening. And it was interesting to me because I've been in this dance of uh, a woman's uh, problem of breast cancer for over 20, uh, 22 years. And it's been a dance. It's been, and I've been evolving through it and I'm still here, but I had to move away from some medicine because the medicine that was being used uh, was going to finish me. <laughs> so. So I, I've been, do, I've been using both best of both worlds is what I want to say, natural, um, physical, spiritual, mental, uh, to be here now today on the show. And um, so I think I'm evolving is what I'm saying. And it, you piqued my interest when you said um, perhaps we weren't evolving as quickly because medicine was taking care of things. Um, so our bodies and our um, minds were not getting um, growing, evolving. So, first of all, congratulations on on you know all the hard work you've done moving through this process. Um, in terms of evolution, I want to be really careful here not to get myself out on out on a limb, oh. <laughs> uh, which is. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is, which is, what you're talking mm -hmm. about is your personal journey and, and mm -hmm. you know, your evolution as a person, which is awesome and, I, and, and commendable. When I'm talking about evolution, I'm talking about like natural selection and changes in gene mm -hmm. frequencies in populations. And mm -hmm. I don't actually know, I don't know if I would, if I would agree with, you know, even maybe what I, I said before, I might've been speaking loosely that we've stopped evolving as a species. I think our evolution to the extent that it's happening has changed a lot because the kinds of forces that would have in the past 
um, been uh, operating under natural selection, sort of traits that would cause people not to survive to a reproductive age, don't necessarily, don't always prevent them from doing that now because people survive in you know a whole bunch of different ways. And what that means is that um, the selective pressures have changed. And so then because the selective pressures have changed, our genotypes have probably changed or our genome as a species has probably changed. And whether that is evolving in one direction or another, I really don't know, mm -hmm. but I do think the selective pressures have changed because of things like medicine where conditions that mm -hmm. would have been say fatal in the past are, are not always fatal now. Uh, so it's changed us. So basically we are gonna become mm -hmm. aliens. No, but I'm just, do you think we're going to see new species um, of animals and plants and insects, like new, and I don't mean um, old species that we just now discovered, I mean like brand new species? The answer is yes, we already are. Oh, there wow. are already new species arising. The fastest way to make new species is when you get a hybridization of two previous species and they create mm -hmm. something new that then goes on and lives on its own, or you get a genetic change in a species that can then move forward. So we already have new plant species. One of my chapters in my book talks about uh, a lake in Africa where evolution seems to happen really, really fast to the fish in the mm -hmm. lakes. They already seem to be on the path toward developing new species. So wow. yes. Um, it's not always going to be super fast. I mean, a lot of evolution does take time for speciation, but the pressures that we're creating in terms of selection pressures on organisms right now are so high that we are already seeing some evolution of new things arising. Wow. See, so it's like we're in a pressure cooker, really. Mm -hmm. We certainly are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're in a pressure cooker on time, but then some things are able, you know, to, to manage it. And so it is about looking at those and going, okay, how are they doing and, and working with that? I really mm -hmm. appreciate your time and your writing and mm -hmm. you've been all over the world. It's so cool. And cool. all the coral reefs. <laughs> My last thing real quick is coral reefs from what we've heard on shows and things that coral reefs are actually growing on things that we never thought like buses, like mm -hmm. old buses being put. Was it, I don't know, was it, where was that Nancy, where they put buses in the water? They didn't know what Can to you? do in the yeah. Know, or this is a, a, yeah. So, so sure that that coral reefs grow in the tropics under the mm. right water conditions, but they right. need something solid to grab onto. So right. they can't grow in the open ocean. They can't grow very well in sand. They need mm. some sort of rock to grow onto. And so, if you take uh, like a big metal structure or concrete structure and you plop it into the ocean in a place mm -hmm. that didn't used to have something that a coral could grow on, you might get corals growing on there. Now, not mm -hmm. all materials are perfect because some, you know, create chemical problems for the corals, um, but right. we see corals growing on oil rigs. We see corals growing on mm -hmm. um, sunken ships. We see gro corals growing on concrete. It, it certainly does happen that once you have a structure in the right place in the world, the corals will come. And that's partly because baby corals, larval corals travel from reef to reef. And so they can settle onto these environments and create a new reef habitat as long as the conditions are right. Wow, so that's what Mike Dunmire cool. was on talking about. Um, mm -hmm. Wind energy out in, wind farms out in the ocean. And he said, you know, there are some positive things and coral reefs is one of them if it's the right place that they will attach onto that, right? So they'll they'll start out there well thank you again everyone the rescue effect thank you so much for joining us uh everyone again it is out right now go get it through timberline press uh michael meta webster and uh do you have a website that people can go to or should they just go get it on amazon and all those places that's the easiest place to get the book and if you want to check out my website just check me out at nyu NYU, thank you so much, everyone. Keep mm -hmm. up with us at bigblendradio.com and keep up with Margo at carrerafineartgallery.com. Thank you so much. Thanks. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. You too. Bye. Bye.